when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Concerns about the Omicron coronavirus variant have dominated Westminster this week, with all of the government's energies focused on the booster program. This is a national mission, and we all have a role to play. If we want to give ourselves the best chance of a Christmas with our loved ones, the best thing we can all do is step up, roll up our sleeves, and get protected when the time comes. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be delving into the new coronavirus strain, which you heard Health Secretary Sajid Javid speak about at the top. What do we know about Omicron so far and how worried should we be about it? And are more restrictions likely to return? Health editor Sarah Neville and science editor Clive Cookson will dissect. And later, we'll be looking at the Bexley and Ode Sidcup by-election result, where the Conservatives returned a comfortable majority. But crucially, we saw collaboration, not for the first time, between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Could this pose a greater threat to the Tories in the future? Political editor George Parker will discuss with our political correspondent Jasmine cameron Shaleshi. With Clive and Sarah, welcome back to the pod. Thanks, Seb. Thanks, Seb. Good to be back. Well, obviously, as you can hear, I'm a little bit full up with cold at the moment, despite having had my flu jab and trying to wrap up during this slightly chilly week. But there's far more exciting news from you, Sarah. I think you've had your COVID booster this week. Yes, I have. So I am, I hope, bursting with antibodies or will be in about a week's time. One of the things that interested me at the vaccination centre I went to was I was having a chat with the lady who did my booster wonderfully painlessly. And I was asking her if they were still getting older people coming in for their first doses of vaccine. And she said they were actually still getting quite a lot of people, which um, is encouraging. If we can get all the over 70s vaccinated, we'll certainly all have a better chance of a, a decent Christmas, I think. Well, unfortunately, it's still going to be a little while before it comes down to my age range, despite having tried to book it. I have to ask, Clive, have you been boosted yet? Oh, yes. I'm three weeks into being triply vaccinated. I'm three times Pfizer, and each of my jabs was totally painless at the time and subsequently. COVID has dominated my working life, but thank God not my health. Well, that's an absolute delight to hear. I think with three boosts of Pfizer, you've got more immunity than anyone could possibly ever ask for. But on the topic of COVID, let's get into the main discussion of the week. A troubling new coronavirus variant has always been Boris Johnson's worst nightmare. Having led a patchy initial response to the pandemic, the UK has won plaudits for its vaccination efforts. But the rise of a new variant that escapes current immunity has always been on the cards. Those are the fears now across the world about Omicron, which was first reported in southern Africa. 
Little is still known about the new variant. And while mandatory mask wearing has returned, most of the government's efforts are now focused on speeding up that booster programme of COVID jabs. The target that we've set ourselves is to offer a booster to everyone eligible by the end of January. And as with the first jabs, we'll be working through people by age group going down in five-year bands because it's vital that the older and the more clinically vulnerable get that added protection first. Well, Clive, let's begin with Omicron and its origins. It's been about two weeks since it was first identified. How much do we know about it and why is everyone concerned about all these mutations that have been detected? Yes, it was Tuesday of last week when all the world's scientists first knew about it, when its genetic sequence was posted on an open website and the WHO then called it a variant of concern, Omicron just a Friday of last week. Everyone, politicians, the public, are desperate to know what all these mutations will do to its behaviour. But remember, even for the fast-moving world of science with all the latest technology, you can't tell much in just a few days. There are three things people want to know. One is, does it cause more severe disease? Two, does it transmit more readily? Is it more infectious? And third, what effects does it have on immunity given by vaccines or previous infections? On all three points, we don't really know. I think it's pretty clear from the way cases are surging in South Africa at a really disconcerting rate that it is more transmissible. In terms of immunity, because it's got so many more mutations than any previous variant, 30 plus alone on the spike protein, which is the key part of the virus recognized by the human immune system. Everyone says that it will make it harder for vaccines to recognize it. And we can expect evidence on that to emerge any day. A study in South Africa has just shown that people who were previously infected by earlier variants are reinfected very readily by Omicron. As for the severity of disease, there were some early murmurings that it caused milder cases, but I think that's because the hospitalizations hadn't caught up. And just on Friday morning, the South Africans said that, unfortunately, hospital admissions were surging too. And most worryingly, there was a particularly sharp rise in children under the age of five. Is it an absolute given, Clive, that it will become the dominant strain of coronavirus or not? Because there's been other new variants that have emerged and they have not overtaken Delta. Or is that one of the things we're waiting to find out? It is something we're waiting to find out. It's certainly going to be the dominant strain in Southern Africa. But the demographics, the infection characteristics, immunity characteristics, vaccination boosters are so different in Europe and North America and East Asia that it may not be. The European Centre for Disease Control has just done mathematical modelling based on what they do know. And they say that it's very likely almost certain, that Omicron will be responsible for most cases in Europe within a few months. But that's provisional stuff. We don't really, really know. 
Well, Sarah, this is the remarkable thing over the past week or so, as Clive was saying, that we don't know so much about this, but no one's taking any chances. And one of the things the UK has been often criticised for is the slow pace of reaction to things on coronavirus, implementing measures too late, acting too slowly. And you could not accuse Boris Johnson's government of that this week when they moved incredibly quickly, that as soon as this was identified, they started introducing surge testing. And then this week, from Tuesday, we've had mandatory masks in nearly all indoor settings again, plus the requirement to self-isolate if you get Omicron, plus bringing back mandatory PCR tests, people coming back into the UK. And I think it speaks to what Clive was saying, that how potentially concerned people are that the government has just moved so quickly and effectively against this new variant. I think that's absolutely right. They really do seem finally to have learnt the lessons from the multiple times when, in retrospect, they clearly were far too slow to impose restrictions. Because, you know, as Clive says, there's considerable evidence growing that this is a more infectious strain. So even if, you know, as we desperately hope it it turns out not to be any more lethal than Delta. By the law of averages, a larger number of people catching it is going to mean a larger proportion ending up in hospital than otherwise would have done. And I think, you know, what hovers over all the actions the government's taken in the last sort of nine or 10 days is this overwhelming fear that the NHS will not be able to cope. As we know, winter is always a tremendously difficult time for the NHS. I remember, I think it was about four years ago at the beginning of 2018, you know, long before any of us had heard of or could even have imagined COVID-19, that all non-urgent surgery was cancelled. So that was the NHS in a supposedly normal year. So when we look at the measures that were brought in, um, we mentioned obviously masks are being brought back and it's not quite that full fat plan B that was discussed because that included the work from home order, which hasn't been given. And that costs about £18 billion, I think, according to the elite government estimates. So they've gone for the most limited options that are not going to attack the economy. But obviously it's had an effect. So, you know, I think we're recording this on Friday morning when we've all just had the email to say the FT staff wide Christmas party has been cancelled. And there's been many reports from the hospitality industry to say that they are getting cancellation. Things are not going ahead as planned. So there is obviously a ripple effect of that, even if the government has had very mixed messaging on whether people should panic or not. That's absolutely right. But I think, as you say, the mixed messaging really hasn't helped this week. We had Jenny Harris, the head of the Health Security Agency, being fairly clear, albeit uh, slightly curiously talking about avoiding non-essential social contact over Christmas. I'm not quite sure how you categorise essential and non-essential social contact. But then clearly Boris Johnson being very concerned at the message that she had sent and trying to emphasise that, you know, it may not be all right to snog people under the mistletoe, as as another minister said, but it is still okay to go ahead with your sort of Christmas uh, jollifications. But I agree, my email inbox, I'm sure yours, Clive and Seb, the same, has been full of cancelled parties in the last couple of days. Yes, indeed. A medical professor I was speaking to was saying that those sort of big work 
events are far, far more dangerous in terms of spreading the virus than smaller family gatherings. And he said that people should feel absolutely fine about family Christmas dinners with a dozen or so people. That's not the problem. But yes, cancelling big Christmas gatherings at work or after work certainly is sensible. So Clive, the government's main strategy for now, as well as bringing these light touch measures, has been to focus on the booster programme. So obviously they've been giving third coronavirus jabs of the mRNA ones, that's Moderna and Pfizer, to the most vulnerable and have been working through the age categories over recent weeks. But this week it was announced that's going to be expedited to a much greater degree. And that's going to be to all adults will be offered that by the end of January, which assumes means it'll be into February before they all get it. The logic for that, I guess, is that you're reducing the time gap, which means you don't get as long-lasting immunity, but you do get extra immunity now, which may be needed if Omicron does turn out to be bad. Is that right? That's partly right. I think the evidence about whether cutting the gap before your third dose from five to three months actually produces less good long-term protection is not clear. The evidence shows that three months will be really effective. And there was a study published this week showing how good boosters are at enhancing the protection you get after two doses, particularly boosters with the two mRNA vaccines made by Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna. And those are the ones which the UK government has ordered for its booster program. The consensus in the sort of virological world is that even if Omicron is much better at evading protection given by vaccination, there will still be, even in the worst case, a lot of protection against hospitalization and certainly against death given by three vaccinations. And what would you say the sort of general mood across the NHS is about this, Sarah? Because as, as Sajid Javid has made quite clear this week, we are in a very different position to where we were last year because a lot of people will be seeing this and having that feeling of existential dread we all knew from last Christmas when, you know, we thought we were through the worst of it. The second wave was beginning to start up, particularly with, I think it was the alpha variant that was then spreading at that point. You know, but it is a very different situation, even though we don't quite know the extent to which the, the current immunity Will work against Omicron, it will certainly help to some extent. It will. And there's no question, you know, as ministers often say, that that sort of iron link between contracting COVID and a rise in hospital admissions and deaths, that has definitely been broken. And certainly, as we speak today, hospitalizations are continuing to fall. I think the fall is currently quite a narrow one, but they are still falling week on week. But I think the feeling in the NHS for a while has been, well, certainly pre-Omicron, was that COVID itself wouldn't be the primary problem this year, but it would be just part of the sort of weight of burdens coming onto the NHS, particularly caused by the kind of conditions that are emerging that weren't around last year. I mean, that is respiratory viruses, particularly that none of us caught last year for the simple reason we were in lockdown and we weren't mixing. But also, you know, anecdotally, there's been a big upsurge in 
children falling ill, particularly those who weren't able to get all their vaccinations during the pandemic. So I think the NHS is still dealing with this massive legacy of the pandemic, you know, coming on top of a system that was already very fragile when we entered the pandemic. You know, ministers like to talk and have rather successfully actually reframed the narrative around the waiting lists as this has been caused by the pandemic. In fact, absolutely not true. We had, I think, four and a half million people waiting even when the pandemic began and the NHS had missed all its waiting time targets for years. So the view is COVID is not the the primary problem, but it's it's a sort of accretion of, uh, of of issues of which COVID remains a significant element. Now, obviously, these new restrictions had to go through the House of Commons. And although it went through, there was a slight Conservative rebellion. About 20 or so Tory MPs voted against the mask wearing measures and about 30 or so rebelled on the issue of self-isolation. And I think it was summed up by the Libertarian MP, Steve Baker, who made these comments about the new measures. I mean, really, what is the relationship between the state and the individual? Are we to be empty vessels, mere automata, things to be managed as if a problem? Or or are we free spirits with, for want of a better term, a soul? Steve Baker went on to describe as facing a vision between heaven and hell. And obviously he dislikes the imposition by the state here, Clive. But there is a possibility more measures may need to come in. And some of the reporting we've done, the FT this week, suggests that masks may become fully mandatory in hospitality situations, which they're not at the moment. And there could also be a potential work from home order over Christmas. And the Department for Health said that this was all contingency planning and nothing was immediately planned like that. But, you know, if we get that data back. Do you think that could be on the cards and could that be enough to combat Omicron? It's very unlikely that they'll impose a really stringent restrictions before Christmas. Also, I think SAGE, the scientific advisors, won't know until the new year quite what a threat Omicron poses. I think mask wearing is going to be part of life for the next few months, mandatory mask wearing. All the evidence now shows that it does cut transmission, not dramatically, but even if it cuts it by so 20 to 30%, that can make an important contribution to the level of COVID in the community and in hospitals. Working from home would make a bigger difference. But as you said earlier, Seb, the cost of the economy is staggering. I think you said 18 billion pounds. Yes. So I think working from home may be advised, but I would be very surprised if it became mandatory. I think it's going to be masks, more exhortation about social distancing, limiting your contacts as much as you can, but not ordering you to. And finally, Sarah, I think this comes to sort of this place we're at with coronavirus, because obviously Jenny Harries, who is director of the UK's Health Safety Agency, which uh, has replaced Public Health England, she came out this week and said that, you know, people should socialise cautiously over Christmas and should not do Christmas parties in Tiffany Place and that sort of things. She was then slapped down by Downing Street and the Prime Minister. But then you've also seen Sajid Javid getting into a dispute with Therese Coffey, who's the Work and Pension Secretary, said people 
should not kiss under the mistletoe. And then Saturday Down said he would kiss cautiously under the mistletoe. I'm not quite sure how one <laughs> does that. But you can see this difficult situation that ministers are in. They're trying to tell people, as Clive was saying, to be cautious in their socialising. Don't go overboard. But at the same time, they don't want to prescribe every single little thing. And I think you're going to see that tension develop as we learn more about it. What's your view on that? And what do you think about any additional measures? Well, I think what was interesting was Chris Whitty saying at a public event that he was sort of genuinely worried about how people would respond if more muscular measures, I think was his phrase, were needed. And he 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 did somewhat walk that back subsequently and said it had been, you know, that was not the message he'd been aiming to to get across. But clearly we are a different nation. 20, 21 months on from the first lockdown than we were. And I think the the issue of how much we are still willing to obey is very questionable. I mean, I think the return to mandatory mask wearing does seem to have been sort of reasonably well ad- adhered to from my, you know, just going into shops and on the odd bit of sort of public transport. But I think whether we we are prepared to do any more than that is really questionable. And the nightmare for the government, I guess, would be that it came out, said much stiffer measures were needed, and they were widely ignored, which is something with which the government hasn't yet had to contend. Sarah and Clive, thank you very much. As the year draws to a close, it's still by-election season in Westminster. And on Thursday, the voters of Bexley and Ode Sidcup went to the polls to elect a new MP. It's a very safe Conservative seat in the southeast of England, yet the Tories were still privately worried that a low turnout could mean trouble for them. In the end, it didn't. And Louis French, the new Tory MP for the seat, paid tribute to his predecessor, James Brokenshire, in his acceptance speech on Friday morning. He made an enormous impact on everyone who lives here. And as your Member of Parliament, I will work tirelessly to build on everything he achieved. I can't put into words how much the support of his wife, Cathy, uh, has meant to me during this campaign, and her strength and bravery throughout has been inspiring. Thank you, Cathy, and it's been a huge honour for me to wear James's rosette tonight in tribute to my good friend. Well, Jasmine, it's great to have you back on the podcast. You've been down to Bexley and Old Sidcup, and normally... This should just be a straightforward Conservative win in this seat, that it's a place that I think they've held consistently. It was once Ted Heath's patch, but there was a bit of nervousness on the ground. When you went down there, what did you pick up? What was the mood and what did you make of the result? Which I should say the Conservatives came back with a decent four-figure majority. So it wasn't a relatively unsurprising result, but what was particularly striking to me was was the turnout. So when I was on the streets of Bexley and I was talking to people and just trying to get a feel for what the mood was, there was a real sense of affection towards the late MP James Brokenshire. There was a sense that he was a really big figure within the local community and even those voters who weren't Conservative inclined had a lot of positive words to say about him. But when the conversation turned to the local candidate Louis French and the Conservative Party overall, the responses sort of ranged from disinterest to disdain. And even among Conservative voters that I spoke to, there wasn't this overwhelming sense of enthusiasm. And a lot of them felt, you know, they said they were voting for the Conservatives out of a sense of party loyalty and a little bit of dislike for Labour. So I think this is reflected in the fact that even taking into account the reduced turnout, the Tory vote share has fallen slightly. And I do think the by-election results 
reflect the fact that the Conservatives are in quite a tricky position at the moment. So they no, no, no longer have the benefit of the vaccine bounce that we saw in the elections earlier this year. But they're at a point where they're trying to implement their manifesto promises, be that on issues of social care or HS2. And there's a real frustration among voters that what they were initially promised by the Tories isn't actually aligning with what's being delivered. Well, George Parker, I think one strategist at Conservative Party HQ said to me, obviously trying to do some expectations management here, um, you know, at this stage in a government, a win is a win. And that this is the point at which governments tend to start losing by-elections. If we think of the coalition era 2010 to 2015, I can remember a whole run of by-elections in sort of the 2012, 2013 era where the Tories started to lose them. And that tends to happen as governments then try and swing back around for the next election. But the fact that they got a majority of, it was just under 5,000, is a little bit of a respite for Boris Johnson, would you say? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I enjoy covering by-elections. I got up extremely early on Friday morning to check the results and get the story up and running for the website at six o'clock. But I have to say this one was less dramatic than some of the other ones we we can re- recall. And, you know, typically in midterm elections, as you say, Seb, this is the kind of seat that governments would expect to face a real problem in. Boris Johnson has his own self-inflicted problems to deal with, initially over his handling of the Sleaze affair, um, social care, the way they handled the announcement on HS2 and the scrapping of the eastern leg of HS2, all those things added to a sense of government going back on its word. Plus, you've got rising prices in the shops and you've got the return of COVID. So diff- a very difficult time. And as Jasmine was saying, there was a sort of sense of apathy on the doorstep. But what was absolutely striking was there was no enthusiasm for the offer of the Labour Party or for the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. And I think that's the striking thing, that although the Tory majority, yes, it came down sharply from nearly 20,000 to just under 5,000 on that very low turnout, the Labour vote share was only up by 7.4%. And frankly, in a midterm by-election, Labour Party should be doing a lot better than that. And I think that's the thing that should trouble Keir Starmer, Jasmine. I saw Owen Jones, the left-wing commentator, was making this point. Obviously, he's very against Keir Starmer's leadership and prefer to return to the days of Jeremy Corbyn. But he was saying, you know, if you look at everything the government's been through in terms of the pandemic, in terms of Tory sleaze, in terms of the Owen Patterson affair, it's been a very bumpy period. And the situation Labour's got itself into is that people are sitting at home on their hands. They're not that enthusiastic about the Conservatives at the moment, but they're not necessarily running towards Labour. And obviously, there's still quite a few years until the next election when this will become an issue. But it does sort of point to some warning signs that that enthusiasm factor is missing. No, I think that's a very fair point. And I think that Labour this morning were trying to spin this as some sort of victory, that they managed to increase their vote share within a Tory stronghold. But, you know, the Tories still won. They still gained the majority of the vote. And when I was down in Bexley, I actually interviewed the Labour candidate, Daniel Francis, and he was arguing that on the doorsteps, more and more people were voicing concerns around issues of sleaze and this issue of one rule for the government and another for them. And while that's certainly true, what seems to have happened is that instead of turning up to support the Labour Party because of their frustration with Johnson, those who were Conservative inclined simply stayed at home. And I do think the party has a long way to go to convince voters to make the switch between Conservative and Labour. One conversation stands out in my mind um, is that I spoke to an elderly gentleman who said that he used to vote for Labour 
but then switched because of Corbyn and wasn't quite prepared to return to Labour yet. And I think that is quite significant. And when I spoke to younger people who you would assume would be more naturally inclined to vote Labour, again, they weren't convinced. So I don't think it's good enough for the party messaging to be, well, the Tories are sleazy and at least we're not them. I do think the public have to have a reason to go out and vote Labour. They have to know what the party stands for and how the party can improve their lives. And I just don't think Labour are there yet in terms of messaging. Now, the only other thing to note from this by-election, George, was the Reform Party. So that is what used to be UKIP, the Brexit Party, and now called Reform UK, and is led by Richard Tice, who is a former close colleague of Nigel Farage. Mr Farage is now off in TV land. He's not involved in active politics now. And this has always been the fear of the Conservatives, because one way of looking at the success post-Brexit of the Tory party is reuniting the vote on the right. Those people who went off to UKIP in about the 2009 period came back home, to use, a, to use a phrase, to the Tories. And the thing that really keeps Boris Johnson awake at night is a new challenger party on the right, being tough on immigration, tough on law and order, and focusing on low taxation. And that's what Richard Tice has tried to do with Reform UK. Up until now, they've not had a huge amount of cut through, but actually they did, they did quite well. They got 6.5%. They came ahead of the Greens and the Liberal Democrats. They didn't come sort of that close to Labour. But if that is replicated and that you put that in seats across the country, that's definitely a problem for Boris Johnson. Yeah, it is a problem. I think at the last election in 2019, the Brexit party, as it was then, secured about 2% of the vote. And that, of course, reflected the fact that the party decided to stand down in a whole load of constituencies. Now, if Richard Tyson, Reform UK, start to regularly poll above 5% and start to, as well as they did in Bexley, where they, as you say, got 6.5% of the vote, that does become a problem for Boris Johnson because you know, one of the features of British politics, as you mentioned, Seb, of recent times is the way that the Tories have managed to unite the vote on the right of politics, whereas the vote on the left, the progressive uh, alliance, as it's sometimes called, of the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, Plaid Cymru, Greens, is split. At the moment, Reform UK typically is polling around 4 or 5% in national opinion polls, but they've got a lot to go at you know, with migration in the channel, which is a huge issue on the doorstep, COVID restrictions, which some people obviously don't like, and that's a big campaigning issue for, for Reform UK. So certainly Boris Johnson's looking over his shoulder at that populist force on the right and what they might do in the next year or two. I think it's important to note that they're also trying to rebrand. As George mentioned, they'd sort of moved away from solely focusing on Brexit and they're hoping that in the coming months they can tap into concerns held by Conservative voters on issues such as the cost of living crisis and the Conservatives' economic policy as a whole. Now, obviously, the party only gained a small percentage of votes, so I think it's important not to overstate their significance. But I do think the party has a history of sort of shifting the political narrative and really punching above its weight and I think it was Richard Tice said earlier this year that the party hopes to stand around 600 candidates in the next general election. And so they'll probably see today's result as a good indicator that at the very least, the public are willing to give them a chance again. And they do have a chance at tapping into that sort of Tory discontent. Now, we've obviously had this by-election, George, but we've got another one in two weeks' time in North Shropshire, which I think we both agree is going to be much more significant to watch. And the Conservatives are much more fearful of an anti-Tory backlash there, that when you get such by-elections prompted by misdoing of MPs, it's ripe for populist and opposition parties to try and make hay out of. Now, we did some digging this week, and it looks as if we are beginning to see the first signs of not quite electoral pacts, but electoral deals between 
between both sides here that you can see that in Bexley and Ode Sidcup, the Liberal Democrats were basically didn't do that much. They sort of stood back, they let Labour do most of the running, and in return, Labour are going to do the opposite in North Shropshire. Now, obviously, these are not formal pact. It's not to do with money or standing aside because that gets very contentious with electoral law. But it is definitely happening below the radar. And I think when you and I have both written about this, it was cited in the two by-elections earlier this year that in Batley and Spen in West Yorkshire, the Liberal Democrats basically didn't campaign at all and Labour had a free one and won the seat. And in Chesham and Amersham, Labour did very little and the Liberal Democrats won it. Do you think that had any success in Bexley and Ode Sidcup and could it have any success in North Shropshire? Well, not overtly successful in Bexley and Old Sidcup. The Lib Dem vote certainly uh, was rock bottom. The Lib Dems finished fifth with 3% of the vote. So they kept their side of the bargain of keeping campaigning to a bare minimum in Bexley. But the Labour Party, frankly, failed to capitalise on that. But as you say, the Shropshire or the North Shropshire constituency could be a lot more interesting. So rather than Bexley, where the vacancy was created by the death of a much-loved local MP, James Brokenshire, in North Shropshire, of course, it the by-election has been caused by the resignation of Owen Patterson, former Tory minister who was caught up in a sleaze scandal. And what's interesting about North Shropshire is that at the last election, the Labour Party finished second behind the Conservatives and the Lib Dems finished third. But the Labour Party has made a calculation that because they're not particularly strong on the ground in that part of the world, it's a rural constituency quite a long way from Labour heartlands, that it's not worth them spending large amounts of scarce resources campaigning there. But that means the Lib Dems are trying to get a bandwagon rolling as being the main opposition to the Tory party. And as you say, these are not formal pacts, but it's both the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats working out where they can get most bang for their buck in terms of campaigning. And it's also important to mention that Ed Davey, the Lib Dem leader, has been making explicitly clear that his objective at the next election is to try to help remove Boris Johnson from number 10, obviously the same objective as Keir Starmer, the Labour leader. And that's very different from... Some previous general elections where the Lib Dems have tried to ride both horses at once and have this policy of equidistance. And of course, Nick Clegg went into government with the Conservatives. This time round, Lib Dems explicitly are trying to get Boris Johnson out of number 10. So that does create the climate for more of these unofficial on the ground deals between the two parties. Now, Labour have reshuffled its shadow cabinet this week, which I think speaks to what you were saying, Jasmine, about trying to get a bit more oomph here. And the timing of the whole thing was incredibly suspect because Angela Rayner, the deputy leader, was giving a speech at the Institute for Government Think Tank about Tory sleaze and how they would strengthen independent regulation. And pretty much the exact moment that Rayner stood up on stage, Kistama decided to phone people and start sacking them. And some could see this as a power play. It was a way of saying to Angela Rayner that he is in charge, trying to stamp his authority. But it was very odd. And we've ended up with a, a quite different new team, actually, at the top there. That obviously the most notable things the return of Yvette Cooper, who was a cabinet minister from the Blair era and was on the shadow front bench at Ed Miliband. She's back as shadow home secretary. David Lammy's been promoted to shadow foreign secretary. Ed Miliband's been slightly demoted, losing the business brief and focus interest on energy and net zero. Jonathan Reynolds has been promoted to business secretary. And the two most striking appointments for me, one is Wes Streeting as the shadow health secretary and Bridget Philipson as the shadow education secretary. So most people will look at this and say, well, I've, I've not really heard of any of these people. Why does it matter? But I think on balance, it's probably a much stronger team. 
No, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, I, I thought the timing was quite interesting and the fact that Angela Rayner seemed to be caught off guard, it, it didn't really speak to a party that's sort of being quite coherent and it doesn't dampen claims of sort of Labour infighting that always seems to riddle Starmer. But I do think it's quite striking that we've seen some of these big figures return, like Yvette Cooper, we see David Lammy taking more of a um, centre stage. I do think this particular lineup, they tend to be more media friendly. I think even though you know most everyday people may not have heard of them, they certainly are more prominent than the old shadow cabinet. And so I do think there is a sense that Starmer is trying to position himself for the next general election. He's trying to position the his shadow cabinet you know, to be a credible force. And I do think, you know, ultimately, even though the timing was slightly suspect, I, I think it, you know, the party's stronger for it. And George, obviously, the other thing I should note as well as, of course, was Lisa Nandy was moved from Shadow Foreign Secretary to Shadow Leveling Up Secretary, going behind Michael Gove. And although that would maybe be seen as a downward move, actually, it seems to be a round peg, round hole situation because Leveling Up is what's going to define the success or not of Boris Johnson's government over the next two years, whether they can deliver those promised changes to big parts of the country that voted Tory for the first time. And as I'm sure listeners will know something I've written and banged on about a lot. And Lisa Nandy is probably the person who gets this the most. And way before this became on the mainstream agenda with the Centre for Towns Think Tank and her campaigning for buses and improvements to town centres, that's put her in a very prominent position there. Do you agree with that? And what do you make of the new lineup? I think it's definitely quite the question of Keir Starmer putting round pegs in round holes. And I think it's certainly the case with Lisa Nandy because notionally, yes, she was Shadow Foreign Secretary before that's one of the big jobs. But in opposition, being shadow foreign secretary is not much of a job at all. And you want your best people doing the most you know, important jobs for the electorate. And you know, Lisa Nandy, MP for Wigan, as you say, someone who's got that whole town's agenda in her DNA, I think will be a very effective person. Yvette Cooper coming in to do home affairs as well, much more competitive. And hopefully what we'll see is the Labour Party doing what it should be doing, and that should have been doing for the last goodness knows how many years in opposition, which is actually opposing being more professional, keeping ministers on their toes, getting attack lines out. You know, even since the, the over the last few days since the reshuffle, I've just noticed more stuff coming out from shadow ministers attacking their opposite numbers, trying to make the political weather. So look, I think it's a more managerial team, more professional, more media friendly, as Jasmine said. And frankly, I think a team that's much more likely to you know, put up a good fight at the next election and create at least some jitters on the Tory side. Well, George and Jasmine, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please subscribe. You know where to find us, all the places you get your pods, Apple, Spotify, Google. You can get those episodes every Saturday morning. You could also leave us a positive review and a nice rating if you felt so inclined. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. And until next week, thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.